Welcome to The Innovative Executive, the show that helps you make innovation a priority in your business. Innovation strategy consultant Bella Rushi helps you rethink your business model, embrace collaboration, and leverage technology. If you want to drive innovation and bring new growth to your business, then stay tuned as she meets industry experts who share practical experience to help you unlock your innovation potential. And now, here's Bella Rushi. Today on my show, I have Brian Cheney, former Vice President of Information Technology, CIO of Nintendo. He's also a board member for Daffity Labs and Executive Advisor for Energize Works. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, Bella. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm super excited to have you. I know you and I met last summer when we were looking at the manuscript for the book and I really appreciate the feedback that you gave me on Nintendo's Animal Crossing. My pleasure and congratulations on the uh, the launch of your book. That's great. Yeah, it was fun and it's finally out. I'm, I'm glad uh, that it's finally out. So I wanted to start this by asking you more of a fun question. So first, before we get into your role and a little bit about your experience with Nintendo, do you play? Do you play video games? Of course I do. How do you work for a company for 30 years and not play the products, right? So I I do. I'm a huge fan of of Mario Kart. I love Zelda. So absolutely. I'm a gamer. Yeah, yeah, me too. And my favorite character is Peach. So (laughs) I, I pick the same character every time. So tell us about your role at Nintendo. You were CIO for Nintendo of Americas, is that correct? And uh, VP and Senior Global Advisor for the company? So, yeah, a longtime member of the Nintendo family. I mean, I started when I'm literally just a kid, practically. You know, had had one uh, gig prior to Nintendo and had spent the majority of my career there. As mentioned, um, I eventually became the CIO for the Nintendo of Americas and then after that, I became a global advisor. Most of uh, my time with Nintendo of Americas was really focused on um, consumer-facing activities, uh, a hub for the consumer uh, back-end um, support uh, was really driven out of the, the Americas. And myself and my teams uh, actually launched the the early online gaming capabilities also launched uh, the early commerce capabilities both you know on device and and off device and of course the role included a bunch of back office activities as well but but really the the, the focus was on making sure that we were creating great consumer experiences for our customers and i know during your tenure nintendo expanded to many new markets during that time because you were there for a pretty long time. What did you see as some of the barriers when you're entering new markets? Well, regardless of the product, when you're going into new markets, uh, there there are a lot of what some folks call, you know, barriers, you term as barriers. And really, as we moved from America's uh, North America to South America and, and other countries in Europe and and Australia and such over the years, we found it really helpful to think of them not necessarily as barriers or hurdles or uh, uh, really just think of them as, you know, requirements, right? And as we looked at those requirements, it was 
how can we, you know, best address these requirements uh, to make sure that, you know, our products are available, they're available, they're creating a great consumer experience. And so as we looked at that, it, it was it was really just understanding and, and doing our best to, you know, innovatively, uh, creatively uh, meet those, you know, requirements that it took to, to be successful in, in a given market. And, you know, that's that, like I mentioned, that applies to, you know, any organization. It might be a little bit of a steeper transition uh, into a new market if if you're an entertainment company uh, or a gaming company like Nintendo, you know, beyond those, uh, you know, typical barriers of, you know, distribution and compliance and localization and those sorts of uh, things that you see pretty much in, in every product. When you're distributing a product that's targeted at maybe a younger audience, you have, you know, to be concerned about the content that you're distributing and rating systems. And if you're doing business directly to consumers, then, of course, you're having to think about, you know, what commerce looks like, you know, what kind of payment mechanisms are appropriate for for that given market. What's the banking relationships in place to be able to effectively uh, process financial transactions in that market? So there's a, a lot just as a foundation. And then beyond that, um, the gaming companies have to uh, address when in moving into a new market. And we always found that it was really helpful to kind of put your... Uh, you know, walk a mile in, in the uh, you know, consumer's uh, shoes uh, of that market to understand, you know, why what might seem as, as barriers or you know, extraordinary requirements in that given market to understand why they're in place and try to address them in the spirit that they were intended um, to be addressed, um, as opposed to just trying to check the box to be able to get into a, a given market. That's a great perspective. And especially having people like in the market to actually give you feedback on what's going on. I remember working in supply chain management and we had situations like that where you actually have to have, you know, people in Latin America to actually give you feedback of how this process is going to work because just doing sometimes things through phone calls is not is not going to give you the best processes and deliverables. Yeah, and we we often, I would say more often than not would have local market, you know, partners whether that be distributors or a, a branch in that given market, just so we had that local perspective and um, always, always very helpful. Yeah. And you can take those learnings across the organization, right? Not just to one marketing team for content, but you can actually take that data throughout the organization and use it in so many different ways. So today there's a lot of talk about other organizations coming into the gaming industry like Google, Apple, and Amazon. They're entering the market or have entered the market, right? What kind of corporate strategy do you think the current gaming platform companies should be thinking about from your experience? So first of all, the gaming, you know, media and entertainment market is a, a huge market. It's growing. There's lots of opportunities there. And so I would say even though you know, the, the current constituents uh, in that market are going up against some really big names with really large, you know, teams and bank accounts, if you will. There's a a lot of value in in just continuing to do, you know, what you've done in the past. Uh, embrace the legacy that you have. Embrace the the customer base. 
build the loyalty with the customer base that you have, you know, leverage your content and brand and franchise, but do that in, in a way that, that keeps up with the expectations of the consumer. So understanding your consumer, adapting, but never forgetting that you already have a loyal uh, customer base that you can transition to give you a, a foot up beyond the likes of those mega companies who are looking to get into the industry. Yeah, understanding the customers. I mean, today, you know, I think a lot of it is everywhere. You find it on mobile games. There's data everywhere, right? Laptops. And right now there's all the new technology trends that are happening with the 5G, augmented reality, virtual reality. And I read recently that it's predicted that in the gaming industry may overtake the movie and the entertainment industry. And I wanted to kind of, you know, get your thoughts on this because you were you were at Nintendo for like over 30 years. So what do you think of that? Well, I mean, it's all about customer experience, right? What consumers will spend their hard-earned dollars on to uh, spend time uh, creating enjoyment. And so how to think that the gaming industry would displace the, the movie industry. I think there's always going to be a segment of audience that enjoys just sitting down and enjoying a movie, right? Without having to think and interact and that sort of thing. But I do think there's a, a growing consumer base around those who not only want to just watch, but want to watch and engage and connect both with the content and with others around the content socially. And, and so I do think that there is absolutely going to be, you know, maybe some cannibalization across those industries. They're both going to continue to exist. And, you know, any media and entertainment company, whether you're, you're making video games or, or movies or concerts or, or what, what have you, right, it, it's all about the customer experience and driving engagement and that sustained you know, kind of engagement over time. And so those who do best at that, I think will do better. So this was in my book. I had written that I got a Christmas card from a neighbor. And I think I shared this with you that she was telling me that, you know, she's playing Animal Crossing with her kids as well as her grandkids. So this is someone probably in her early 50s. I've tried Animal Crossing and it's a great game. And there's new segment out there, you know, of, of adults who are playing all these games because they have the time. And obviously the pandemic had a lot to do with um, seeking new entertainment, right? Because the movie industry, the, the theaters were closed, at least or at least here in Philadelphia, part of a you know, few months they were closed. So they were seeking different types of entertainment and their games like Animal Crossing did make their Christmas list and, and they were playing. It gave them that a lot of these games are giving the online connection today right? That growing up. And that's a new segment out there that the gaming industry is going after or can go after. It just open, opens up a, a new market. Yeah, I think Animal Crossing, and then there are another, other games that also do this, but Animal Crossing in particular, maybe you know not the, the number one franchise that you would think about you know, when you Nintendo, right? But has a lot of those things that drive kind of ongoing engagement in a product or a uh, you know, entertainment experience. It allows you to personalize. It allows you to kind of grow over time. It's got a social aspect to it. It's got some timing you just can't 
flow through the game all at once. And so there's always new kind of surprise, you know, moments coming into the game. And so it has a lot of those things that is very compelling in keeping people connected to the content. Yeah. And sharing that data too. And just, I don't know if my audience knows this, but Animal Crossing, correct me if I'm wrong, did come out in 2001. It's, it's, it's a really old game. I mean, it's not that it came out recent, you know, and, and uh, it, it kind of made its way to this platform at the top of all the games where everyone is playing it. All the kids are playing again, the, the newer generations are playing and how amazing is that, right? I can't speak to the official numbers for Animal Crossing, but I do know that, you know, just kind of watching the franchise over time, it's been really amazing how it's kind of continued to maintain an audience and bring new people to that experience over time. And I think a lot of it has to do with people looking for social, people looking for things that are fun and cute and and quite frankly, um, safe content wise, right? And so it's, you know, a franchise that's become more and more loved uh, by, you know, let's see, probably millions of people over time. Again, I don't know the numbers, but a very compelling experience, yeah. It seems as if the gaming industry is always innovating. In your experience, what are some of the drivers and processes of this sustained innovation? Can you describe ways that you've fostered innovation within your organization? First of all, to to address the you know innovation in the gaming industry, I, I think it's a, a necessity, right? The desire of the the users, the purchasers, you know, of those you know video game products continues to change, you know, over time, and and you see, you know, a lot of that innovation might be technical in that you know I need to support the next um, you know high def standard that's out there, so that you know those uh, you know high end consumers are are getting a you know the experience that they hope for. You have to stay up with, you know, the technology trends and those sorts of things because that's expected. But the consumers are also, you know, not just, you know, the technology changes, but, you know, what's what's fun? You know, what does a consumer to expect? And so trying to understand what that is and making sure that you have a pipeline of products, whether they be hardware products or content, software products, is really important to, to make sure that you continue to sustain and, and grow your, your business and audience, et cetera. And so how have I seen that work well in the past? I think of innovation in kind of a couple different ways. I think of the, the big I innovation, those, you know, kind of game changing and pun intended, I guess, you know, technological or experience um, activities as kind of the big I uh, stuff. And then I, I think of innovation in the little I and that those things that change and improve on a day-to-day day basis in my organization's the best. I try to essentially uh, support both, right? Making sure that you don't forget all the little I, the day-to-day improvements and those sorts of things, you know, because, you know, there's this this big innovation that you're trying to, you know, transform the organization. And so giving them both space within an organization, I think, is really important. The big eyes, I, I think, are really, they come from purpose, right? They come from having a, a guiding kind of light and culture that says that, you know, we're going to do X, whatever X is, you know, maybe to reflect on a, a, a Nintendo story and one that I tend to come back to over the years as we think back to the Nintendo Wii, right? And think about, uh, you know, how huge a transformation was of this motion-based, you know, 
gameplay. And that really came out of the uh, understanding of our purpose as an organization and our audience. Uh, I mean, we're trying to create smiles across this very large audience. Our audience was essentially audience of people age five to 95. And and what you saw going on in the gaming industry um, at that time is uh, competitors and even Nintendo coming out with these super complex controllers. You know, they have 20 buttons on them and, and to control a game, it was getting to the point where it was very unapproachable. And you think about putting that controller in the hands of a five-year-old or, you know, worse in the hands of a 95-year-old, it just didn't work, right? And so trying to create a familiar user experience to address that gap, how do we create a gaming experience for that wide of audience, really was kind of the birth of this motion gameplay. How do I create a device that mimics, you know, the swinging of a bat or a tennis racket or what you would do to bowl? And everybody knows how to do those things, right? And so that controller, that innovation, if you will, really opened up the gaming audience to a huge, huge uh, number of people because, you know, we kind of dumbed down the interface a bit, right? If you will. Yeah, that was one of my favorite games too, the Wii. Thank you for sharing that answer. I know that um, my listeners and I appreciate that. Speaking of users, understanding the users of your products continues to be one of the biggest challenges for companies. What are some of the more effective measures you've put in place during your time at Nintendo? So I, I think understanding your users, your audience um, is, is key to being able to continue to innovate and, and meet their needs. I, I think it's you know, key to you know, the current gaming uh, companies being able to understand and support the changes needed to, you know, continue to grow their organizations and, you know, compete uh, against new entrants into the market, as we talked about before. I think that understanding your audience really should be for that purpose and that purpose alone for uh, creating a better experience not you know creating uh, you know a product out of out of your audience I, I think is is just not the right thing to do so understanding for the improvement of their experience I think is key when you take uh, take it from that mindset I think data collection um, obviously everybody's doing it these days is key you know understanding you know where people are spending their time within your products understanding you know what the trends are coming up all all in, important i think when you can bring those all together is when you actually create a a uh, you can create programs that that truly drive you know usage and engagement and pleasure in, in using your product, you know, putting smiles on people's faces, instrumenting your products to be able to collect the data, doing the market research to be able to, you know, understand, you know, how your products are perceived, listening to your audience to make sure that you understand the, the gaps today so that the next time you release a product, you can um, address those if, if it makes sense. And so there are just so many channels that you need to to address to pull this together but coming up with a program that allows you to collect data across all those channels collate the data across those channels and then um, 
put in place a, um, a way to surface that information to the right people in the organization so that uh, whether that's on the product side or the customer support side or the marketing side, so that that can truly be put to action. When I think about some of the things that my teams have done um, in the past that um, have uh, kind of truly made a difference when they've pulled information from all those channels. By the way, this was not something that uh, we invented or, you know, I invented or was new to us. This is just something that I, we found fairly effective is, is actually using the information to create a, a good onboarding experience for a, a new title or for a new platform so that you actually help the consumer along the, the journey and um, ultimately got them to a place where they could self-sustain on a platform and actively engage with the, the, the product, you know, kind of over, over time in, in a way that, you know, kind of lowered frustration and um, created a, a good experience for them. And so, I, you know, I, I think about using information about you know, where they're at in the journey, how they're doing on that journey. Are they progressing? Have they stalled? If stalled, helping them with with tips and and tricks and or maybe even lowering the the difficulty so that they can take the the next step up in in you know learning more about how they use the game and are making progress or how to use the device and are making progress so i i think using data to improve uh engagement and in that onboarding space i think is a really valuable so true um brian i know microsoft used that when they Annette, when they launched Windows long time time ago, they had their call centers ready to make sure they can answer all the questions about the, the, the their new product, and then of course Apple did the same thing with the iPhone with the Genius Center and or the Genius Bar. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely, that's a great point that you hit on. And even the content, um, I see many companies, and I, th- I think this is just brilliant, right? They they look at where you're at. And they say, you know, thank you for installing my product. Here's a couple things that you might try to to get value out of it. And you know, by the way, you know, we're seeing a lot of people struggling doing this. So you know, don't do that. And, and then they see that you've used those features, and they're they're on to you know how do we you know get you to you know use more of the product, and they're giving you tips and tricks a- along the way. Maybe even some you know incentives. Um, that ultimately have you, you know, becoming a, you know, a power user for that product. And so I, I just think it's, it's a really great way to ultimately, you know, get people to where they need to be in, you know, using the product without frustration and um, using it on a regular basis, which then keeps them you know, coming back, upgrading to the next version, et cetera. Brian, um, we're coming to a close now. And I wanted to ask you one last question before we go. What is a myth that you would like to clear up about the gaming industry? The question that I get asked a lot when they found out I work for Nintendo, right? It's like, do you play games all day? And um, the answer is obviously no. But it's it's so funny that so many people think because you work for a gaming company that that's what you do for a living. And um, and I wish that was the case, quite frankly. But uh, there was a lot of work that went on behind the scenes to actually create the games that it took to allow people to spend a lot of time playing games. Us, not them. So thank you so much. We thank you so much for uh, your time today and uh, all the insights that you've given to us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for being on the show. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Innovative Executive with Bella Rushi, founder of Symmetry Consulting, a firm that specializes in helping companies embed innovation into their company. If you liked this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, make sure to check out Bella's book, The Innovative Executive, leading intelligently in the age of disruption. Join us for the next episode to further unlock your innovation potential. 